We have, quite literally, just walked back in the door from PAX Unplugged. With sore voices, little sleep, and very heavy bags of loot, it's time to cover all the cool things we saw. Hello everyone, and welcome to the Sprites and Dice podcast, where we talk about gaming news, reviews, opinions, and thoughts, all in 45 minutes or less. My name is Wyatt Krause, and I am joined by Eric, my writer and fellow convention goer. Hello there. So, everyone, today is November 19th, and... Wyatt, Wyatt, we have 45 minutes to talk about all of PAX Unplugged. Yeah, we, we should probably just cut right into that. So we're not going to do any news, we're not going to do anything except for PAX Unplugged. We just have to jump right back into it because there was a lot there. And honestly, we are trying to record this right now for one major reason. We don't want to forget anything and try to cover as best we can all the stuff we did see. For those of you who are in our audience that aren't familiar with Penny Arcade Expo, Penny Arcade Expo is typically a event that happens in multiple different places in the world. Uh, Seattle, Boston, in the south in Texas... Uh, sometimes in Australia, and it is usually a very large gaming expo focused around video games. That's the very large push of it. This was the first one that Penny Arcade Expo did that was dedicated to anything analog. So role-playing, rolling dice, playing board games, playing card games. And everyone was kind of taken off guard that they were trying to do this. It was certainly unexpected, but I think they pulled it off very well. Now, there were a couple of hiccups we heard about from the vendors, like with how they had them set up and the requirements that were more suited to a video game expo rather than a tabletop game expo. But Penny Arcade is no stranger to the convention scene, so they knew what they were doing. We were talking with some of the actual people running the booths, and they did say how, again, the way they did set up and takedown was very different from what they were used to. But at the same time, they loved that Penny Arcade had their enforcers out helping them out everywhere. That's one thing Penny Arcade is known for is having this very large army of volunteers that helps manage things and run things and makes it easier for all the people that are there, whether you are a consumer or you're one of the people trying to sell your product. Yeah, so what is PAX Unplugged? PAX Unplugged is them taking the tabletop section of PAX East and blowing it up to fill a convention center. Which was rather surreal to walk in there for a few different reasons. We'll get there in a moment. We drove down there Thursday night a little bit early because one new thing is that it was in Philadelphia, which I've never been into and I don't think Eric has either. No, me neither. So uh, we got a little bit lost. There was a lot of traffic. We wanted to meet up with some friends, and we heard about a great um, pre-PAX gaming party that we wanted to go to. We got lost in the middle of the city. We park our car, and we wonder, hey, we should try to find a landmark to know where we're going to be. Yeah, well, we wound up next to Independence Hall, completely by accident. We were Wha wondering why the parking was $20. <laughs> walk right by the Liberty Bell, and we're like, I wonder where we are, and then we turn, we see Independence Hall there, roped off with police in front because it's nighttime, just making sure no one's vandalizing it, promptly walk through two or three parks, including, you know, by the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier with the flame going in the middle of the evening. Yep. Oh, that's where we are. So, yeah, it's, it's kind of funny because you try to have landmarks, and we realize how many old buildings there are just scattered throughout this entire area. It was kind of surreal to do that. Yeah, very different from any city I've ever been to. There's just so much history. So after um, catching dinner with some friends, we actually got to the pre-packs gaming party that was run by Ninth Level Games, who are locals to Philly. Yep, and their host, who very much reminded me of Patton Oswalt. Yeah, uh, Chris, he was kind of one of the heads of Ninth Level Games, which is, you know, one of the smaller companies, but they really have a really great sense of humor. They love running very light casual games that are a lot of fun to play that run from 
card games to some small board games. They have a RPG called Kobolds Ate My Baby, where you're the kobolds. And it was just so they have a lot of really tongue-in-cheek sort of humor. They ended up running a social deduction game called um, I Was a Teenage People Eater. I was a teenage lizard person, I think. Yes, I was a teenage lizard person, which can be played with up to 62 people, where you have two songs to figure out if the person you're going to dance with during the second song is a human lizard person. Yeah, it's it's a high school prom is the setting. Yeah, and teenage lizard person. I'm going to keep doing that. Yeah, so the setting was a high school prom, and you have one dance to you know go around, talk to people, chat with them. Everyone's got certain pieces of information, and you're supposed to deduce who the lizard person is, and you want to dance with someone who is not a lizard person. And then the second song, you're dancing with this person. At the end, they go around and ask, if you're human dancing with a human, you're golden, you win. If you're human dancing with a lizard person, you get eaten. If you're two lizard people dancing together, you eat, you each, eat each other, and you both lose. It was a ridiculous way to start everything. We actually got to play some games like Resistance, some lighter fare, uh, met up with some people. I got to see some some reviewers I had never seen before and got to chat a bit. It was a fantastic time. I really enjoyed it. And by the end of the night, we were finally going back to where we were staying for the evening. And we were like, hey, we had a great convention. But wait a moment. And then we realized, wait, the convention hasn't started yet. So um, definitely, if you ever go to a convention, you always have to remember. There are always you know pre-parties or after-parties. And that's a large part of it. Because you're going to a convention to kind of meet other people, revel with what you enjoy, whether it's going to be Star Wars or anime or games for us, obviously, and celebrate that with other people. So that was fantastic. And then, of course, we walk in Friday morning after too little sleep. Too little sleep, too much caffeine. So we go in, we get our press passes, they open up the expo hall for us, and front and center is the Renegade Games booth. They've got this huge area. They're showing off uh, Ex Libris. They're showing off Clank in Space, the Mm -hmm. new Scott Pilgrim game. It sort of felt like it was going to be the Renegade show because the lanyards that they gave out were also all Renegade games. So Renegade was making a very strong showing there, and... As we were talking to them, we learned the reason for it. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. And as we talked to them, we found out the reason for it. We're having the definition of first world problems in the gaming industry right now, that there are so many good board games coming out every year and there's no way to keep up with it all. And Renegade realized that they needed to make a big play to stand out. So they've released something like six games in the past year. Uh, uh, it was six games in the last month. Oh, God. So that's what you had. You had uh, Clank in Space, who that had actually just hit market about a week and a half or two weeks ago, and it had been released at Gen Con to kind of test the waters. You also had that with Ex Libris, which has a lot of really, really great hype about it. The Scott Pilgrim card game, and then you had the Raiders of the North Sea and sort of the additions to the side of that. And they were all there. Now, one thing to keep in mind is that I know we're talking about this as being a big booth, but in comparison to what you see at Penny Arcade East, this was one of the major differences. Yeah, even the big booths were really not that big. When you go to a Penny Arcade East, they will have these giant statues you climb on top of. You have these long, winding lines to try to even just wait and see the game. You have to set up these large banks of computers or consoles. It's a giant affair. The Renegade booth was one of the largest ones there on the show floor. And the reason why is they had a really great setup with a lot of different demo tables for each of the games. So they kind of had it spread out a little bit. And in each corner was an individual game that they were showing off with an individual person there to actually demo the game for everyone. So even though that was probably one of the most packed booths at all times, there was never like a wraparound line that was clogging traffic. Yeah, and that was definitely one of the major things I appreciated was there was no line that you were going to stand for hours to go demo a game for a few minutes. It was, you walked up, is there an opening? Yes, no. If not, you know, maybe go wander off, try something else, or just give it 20 minutes. 
And that's what you kind of had going everywhere. There, I did see a few lines, but it was very rare. For example, Fantasy Flight Games was right in the starting area, and they didn't have a booth at all. They weren't selling anything. They were just demoing all their games, and they had a demo team. So they actually had around their area a few wraparounds. But a lot of different booths just had a sign-up sheet, and they said, hey, we're full right now. Do you want to come back at 4 o'clock tomorrow? And that wasn't just for press. That was for a lot of different people to kind of fill up keep people coming in and out of wherever they were. And that was kind of really, really great to see because we could actually walk around the show floor very, very fast. And it was really great too. I'm used to having to wait on lines to go play games and, you know, get through the crowds and everything. And except for Saturday, which did get very crowded in the middle there, which Saturdays typically do, I was able to just go up and demo things and walk away. Yeah, same here. It, like I said, you go up to a game that you want to try, maybe they're full, maybe they're not. If they are, you come back in 20 minutes, half an hour, and you're good to go. So we kind of mentioned Renegade Games, because that was when you walk in one of the first booths that you see that was set up very well, and it was probably the ideal setup because you could wander actually even through it. They had all their games set up in very nice large stacks that made them look really nice as well, and as the stacks dwindled over the course of the weekend, more room filled up actually, which was fantastic. There was another um, game company that kind of seemed like they were knocking out of the park, and that was uh, Greater Than Games. Yeah, Greater Than Games had their booth not quite as big as Renegade, but pretty big in its own right and they also made their showing they had an entire room devoted to their stuff and they were the only company to do that that was outside of the expo hall floor right they kind yes. of had their own sometimes you'll see this at conventions and i'm not sure you know who gets priority off of what but they really wanted to show off a lot of the new games they had they're the company that made sentinels of the multiverse which became i had kind of had a cult following was a classic and they were going through however you might have noticed recently they've kind of branched out and they've started having a lot of different board games trying to cover a wide range of casual to heavy, and they really were trying to reveal that to everyone. Yeah. Uh, if not Sentinels of the Multiverse, you probably know them from Spirit Island. Yeah, Spirit Island was a game that really knocked it out of the park in a Kickstarter, really knocked it out of the park at Gen Con. And we actually got to sit down and talk with, you know, their head, the founder of the company, Christopher Bedell. He mentioned how they were at the end of their second print run. It already sold out almost immediately. And there's this copies. Is Spirit Island. Yeah. And they had the uh, copies that were only left were the ones that were on the actual show floor. So, I mean, we already have two copies in our group of friends, so we didn't need to pick anything else like that up. But then they had Fate of the Elder Gods that's selling well, and you actually picked up one of their games for yourself. Yeah, I picked up Laser Riders. Um, I played it once, and I just had to get it. It is the most 80s game I've ever played, and I've beaten <laughs> Double Dragon Neon more than once. Oh, goodness. It's basically like if they made Tron into a board game. You're on these motorcycles, you move almost like X-Wing. You lay down these pieces that tell you which direction you're going, how fast you're going. You have to accelerate and decelerate a step at a time. And it just turns into total chaos. What you're trying to do is there are these uh, matrices in the center of the table and you want to drive through them. If you drive cleanly through a matrix, you claim it for yourself. It turns to your color. And the first person to claim three of those at once wins. And I can imagine that gets really messy depending on the size of the board you have or the size of the table. Oh, absolutely. Because they had a really nice big one set up, but I can't imagine trying to play that at a bar that has like a very long, thin table. Yeah, they say there are variations for different sizes and shapes of tables, but I think uh, at some point you just have to say, here's the table, deal with it. <laughs> that, yeah, and, that's going to have some fun bits that are uh, bar night. Yeah, and it turns into a total 
cluster in the middle. If you leave a trail behind you, if someone runs into your trail, they crash and they have to reset. The faster you're going, the harder it is to turn. You have to roll for it. If you don't roll well enough, you don't make the turn. You just keep going straight. There's a chance you could spin out, which means you do make the turn, but your speed immediately drops to the lowest it can go and you have to rev it back up. It's just fast and crazy. It's a lot of fun. And I'm excited to bring it to bar night because I have a mighty need to see drunk people trying to play this. I, yeah, I can imagine that being, well, I'll be there. So I'll, I'll let you know how that goes, especially when we get a chance to kind of really sit down and review the whole thing in full. So, I mean, there, there was multiple companies that were there that I know I wanted to go see. Unfortunately, you know, Cool Mini or Not was there. And they had a relatively small booth, but they had a lot of their new games that were there to be demoed, including Rising Sun I saw during the first day or two. And I could just never get into that table. I know Adam has that one from Kickstarter, and he's going to be mad that I didn't get a chance to demo it, but it'll be out. Yeah, but I mean, try, trying to get into the Come On booth was impossible. That, that was definitely one that was set up that way. They also were showing off their Kickstarter, which is sort of like a Warhammer fantasy version of the Song of Ice and Fire. So they had Starks versus the Lannisters set up. That had a lot of popularity, and then they had their whole collection. I did notice that they're definitely starting to push away from just miniatures because they had a lot of other games like that. They had you know the Godfather and all the other newest ones. So you know, they did very well for themselves. Ninja Division was just nearby as well, and they were showing off Rail Raiders as kind of their big one. We just talked about that in the last podcast. Yeah, they had Rail Raiders. They had Super Dungeon Explorer. They've come up with a new variation to Super Dungeon Explorer called Super Dungeon Arena. Yeah, where you're kind of the summoners and you're kind of making the monsters and throwing them at people, I believe. Yes. You had actually a Stronghold Games in the corner who had the brand new expansion show up for Terraforming Mars, which was the Venus. It was called Venus Next. They said, oh, it'll be here Saturday. It showed up. It was sold out within an hour. Just gone. I couldn't find it anywhere. was trying to pick one up for myself, actually. However, what I was really happy about was that oftentimes in some conventions, including sometimes at PAX East, you have different sections of the convention center. You have one area that's very much for the indie mega booth and a lot of smaller booths all at once. And then another side, you have all the powerhouses all grouped together. That was not the case here. So you could wander and run into anything you could. Yeah. There was... I mean, right in the middle, there was that cluster of, like, Renegade, Greater Than, Ninja Division, Paizo. But then scattered out to the sides, you had smaller companies mixed with larger companies. If you go over to the free play area, you found little indie guys that didn't even have their own booths. They just brought their games to try out. It was just really cool to walk around and see what you stumbled onto. I know one thing that we stumbled onto, actually, not even before the media hour ended, and that was our first purchase of the day. We, We just outright bought this one is a game called Dice Throne. And the reason why is that it looks really, really good. The artist did a fantastic job on this one. Yeah, they describe it as combat Yahtzee. Which I know sounds really weird and it sounds almost a little silly, but it works really, really well. Yeah, so just just bear with us on this one. The base game comes with six different character classes. A monk, Uh, barbarian, paladin, a moon elf, a shadow thief, and a pyromancer. Each of these people has their own set of five unique dice. The dice have different symbols on them. Each character comes with a character sheet. You roll these dice, you use the symbols on them to activate their abilities. And then on top of that, each character also has a deck of cards. So you generate a certain number of character points each turn, and then you can spend those on these cards that you draw. You can use them to improve your abilities. They have various effects. Uh, One just lets you draw more cards. One generates more character points. One lets you move a status condition from one player to another. Stuff like that. Right. I mean, two major points to that is that the character sheets are rather large. They actually double as a place for you to roll your dice. So when we actually played it 
we brought it home Friday night. We couldn't go to sleep right away because we were too jazzed up from everything. So we were playing at like one in the morning. We pull out the game, and we were playing actually just like on the floor, and we could just use the character sheets as a place to roll the dice, which I find a really great feature. The other thing is actually how different each character is. So I know it, it does have very different themes for each one of them, and each different character comes with their own status effects that they can either inflict on themselves or other people, and that feels really, really good. Yeah. The Barbarian's the simplest one. He's just, he deals a lot of damage, he can heal himself to keep fighting, and he just gets the job done. End of story. And then on the more complicated side, you've got things like the Pyromancer, who's got no defensive abilities at all. She just burns her enemies, makes them take damage over time. Right. I think the most complicated character is the Shadow Thief, who works a lot with poison. Right. And then there's a Paladin that has a ton of buffs. So, I mean, one thing is that this game wasn't even out yet. This game's going to be out... I believe they said in January for full release. We were able to purchase it early. That's one great thing about board game conventions. They often have kind of the forerunner before the boats come in and they go to retail. So that's one really cool thing about a board game convention that I didn't really think about until I got to experience it myself. Yeah. The other thing is that they're going to be doing a Kickstarter sometime next year and they had shirts on showing character art we hadn't seen before, like a gunslinger. So they're going to have another base game that, that can be merged with the first game but it also stands alone, so that's a really cool thing. I have one major quibble with this game, which is that the story behind it is there's this guy who's just called the Mad King, and he's ruled this land for a thousand years, and every year he holds this tournament. The plot of the game is that you're one of the fighters fighting in the tournament, trying to take, trying to take the throne. And he's held this tournament every year for a thousand years, and every year he wins. That's the story behind the game, and he's not even in it. Like, you don't even get to fight this guy. So, because I know they're planning Kickstarters to kind of expand, and I'm hoping they will... Um, this is definitely a game for people that like dice and like the chaos of it. I know when we played our one-on-one, even though it was my first time playing, we played, what, 20, 25 minutes? Maybe. And I'm sure when we get better at the game, it'll go even faster. So it's got this great frantic feel. Yeah. Although, God help me, I got into a six-way battle. I mean, but even with that, it was, I don't know, hour and a half, maybe two hours for a six-way free-for-all with I was the only one who'd ever even played before. So, I mean... An hour and a half for a six-person game is still pretty darn good, but yeah, you might want to play it a few times just on your own. Yeah. But I think we have a lot more to talk about here. I just kind of wanted to mention here, they did have quite a bit of differentiation. The Expo Hall floor itself and kind of the free play area next to it was mostly all tabletop. There wasn't RPGs. That was downstairs. Yeah, although Paizo was there. They were demoing Starfinder, which I finally got to play. Yeah, that was right on the show floor, right? Yes, although I think it was also in the RPG dungeon. But, mm-hmm. but um, they were demoing it on the show floor, so I finally got to play a round of Starfinder. I'm a little disappointed that they weren't demoing the starship combat, but I did get to play just like a general combat encounter on the ground. And I have to give them credit. It is more different from Pathfinder than I thought it was going to be. Even though the mechanics are almost identical, the feeling is very different. There's much more of a focus on ranged combat. It's not so much swords and axes. It's a lot of little laser pistols or laser rifles. I mean, it is a sci-fi game, so you'd expect that. Yeah, absolutely. So there's more of a focus on ranged combat. The weapons don't deal as much damage overall. So instead of having two huge guys slugging it out in the middle, what you end up with is a lot of squad-on-squad combat of them shooting at each other, taking cover and maneuvering. So it's... I thought that was very cool, because, like I said, even though the mechanics are almost the same, it feels so different. Which is kind of... I bet you that that's one reason why it took so long is they wanted to hit that sweet spot. Unfortunately, I can't speak much about it myself. I'm not a Pathfinder person, not because I don't like it, just because I only have so much time for RPGs. 
The one thing I went there for that I was really kind of really hoping for was to play in the D&D Adventurers League and kind of try that out and try their new organized play because I haven't had that. It's not around us here in New Paltz, at least that I've found so far. And I also wanted to pick up the brand new book, Xanathar's Guide. I was able to find Xanathar's Guide, but it took a little bit of work. It was selling out in most of the different booths. I couldn't find any of the special edition cover ones, but I'm happy I got it. It's a really cool looking book. The one thing I definitely think that PAX Unplugged could maybe improve on, or they might want to try to reorganize, or they might have to expand, is the RPG dungeon was stacked. That actually had a line. You'd go downstairs and you'd see it wrapping around the wall. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's tough with RPGs because an RPG session falls apart if your party gets too big. It takes longer than a lot of other types of games. There's only so much you can do. Maybe they can expand it out into other rooms. I don't see how they could fix it short of just expanding it. Exactly. I mean, I think people that got in there had a really good time. It just, you know, it was one thing that I kind of had to cross off because there was so much other stuff I needed to get to. Yeah. Actually, one of my biggest disappointments, going back to Greater Than Games, they're releasing uh, a Sentinels of the Multiverse tabletop game, a role-playing game. Yes, right, right, right. Yeah, so I wanted to get in and try that out. And I wasn't able to. I, I tried to hit that up on Sunday this morning. And so the expo hall opens at 10 o'clock. I think I got to their table about 10.40, and they were booked solid for the whole day already. But that was probably my biggest disappointment was that I didn't get to try that. Actually, that was a complaint that I saw elsewhere. And I mean, that, that's just because of popularity. It's not so much a, again, going back to that phrase, embarrassment of riches. People that wanted to sign up for the mega games and other events... They found them booked even before the convention show floor opened or right after they got there for much of the weekend. So, I mean, that's a good problem to have, but I'm sure that means they're going to have to expand. Oh, darn. Um, let me see. What other stuff that was on the show floor was awesome? One thing I was really happy about that I forgot to talk about to you on the way home in the car. Mm -hmm. um, Hand of Fate is a really great video game. Hear me out. It's a really awesome video game where the idea is that you are playing sort of fable-like action RPG combat, but the way you go through it's a roguelike where the kind of NPC you're playing against is a fortune teller telling your fortune, which is your memories kind of shuffled up into a deck. And when you play through it, you'll you'll kind of get to an area, you'll reveal different cards, and it'll have a ton of monsters or traps or otherwise, you have to fight your way through. It's a really fun concept. They just put out Hand of Fate 2. On the show floor, they actually had a brand new game that finish their Kickstarter and will be coming out next year in the first half called Hand of Fate Ordeals, where they took that and thematically put it onto a board. The entire board looks like the gypsy wagon on the inside. You have the cards that you place down you reveal by walking around them just like you do in the video game. It was really fun to play that. Another game that we didn't actually get to, but ended up being one of the most popular ones there was Fog of Love. Yeah, that was weird. Like, I walked past it once. It looked interesting, but it was one of those things where I thought, huh, I'll come back to that later. I, actually, yeah, during the, during the media hour, I walked by that booth, and it was set up with a whole bunch of heart-shaped balloons everywhere. It had a bright white background, nothing moody about it. Just Well, it was moody, but not you know dark moody. It was all white. They had these little LED candles flickering everywhere to make it look romantic. And it's a game about romantic comedy, and but you know, taking some of the mechanics you would see in a sort of a combat game, as well as other effects, and actually putting it into a game about romantic comedy. And I went... That looks weird. I don't think anyone will really look at this. I'll come back later. I kind of have want to hit some of the big stuff. That was one of my biggest mistakes because I found out halfway through Saturday, I think it was Geek and Sundry or Shut Up and Sit Down when they had a panel, declared it their game of the convention. And from then on, you couldn't get near it. So that was that was that was on us. I definitely need to try out that game after all this stuff I kind of started hearing around the show floor. I want to give a quick shout out to Pandemonium, which is a game store that's 
a pretty much a standby of PAX East, and they've also now come out for PAX Unplugged. And aside from all their usual stuff, they had this pretty cool thing where they had, I think it was a set of seven dice, and they were giving away magic, Magic the Gathering cards, and decks and boxes. And what you'd do is, you'd hand the guy five bucks, you'd roll the seven dice, and depending on what you roll, you get, at bare minimum, a pack of cards and two random foils. So, bare minimum, you're getting your money's worth. If you manage to somehow roll all ones or all sixes, you got four booster boxes. Wait, what? Yeah, now, granted, that's... Uh, what are the odds of that? It would be one in six to the seventh power. <laughs> so, but yes, if by some God-given miracle you did manage that, you could get up to four booster boxes. I tried it twice. Uh, one time I just got a pack. Uh, the second time I lucked out and I got one of those dual commander decks. Two starter decks for five bucks. Our friend Christina was there, and I think she got like the basic stuff, and she was mad at you for a while, right? Yeah. Not my fault. Um, that actually brings me to a game that I got to demo that was really fun and also was kind of one of the weirdest booths out there, which was fantastic. Lay Waste Games. Oh yeah, what was up with that? They had it set up like a like a boy's bedroom from an 80s movie? <laughs> well, sort of. They, they sort of had this antique wooden closet and then they had a whole bunch of stuff in a glass case to show stuff from the 1980s. Those were the guys that made Dragoon, a game that we play in the bar with you know the all metal pieces on a cloth map. It's got this really great iconic feel. And they decided to make a social deduction game called Human Era. And that game is all about tra time travel and things going terribly, terribly wrong. And that was a great social deduction game. There's actually three different types of characters you can play, not two sides. So what's really interesting about Human Era is that you have the humans that are trying to fix the timeline, there's a machine that's trying to screw it up, and that's hidden. But then there's also a cyborg character that's not a human or a machine, and he kind of wants to keep things dead neutral by the middle of the game, and if he does, he can win. I got to do that as a cyborg and hid that, and that felt really good. It was you really would. weird. It was really weird because you also had deduction on top of kind of deception on top of deception and there was it was a lot more complicated than other social deduction games but it's doing well on the kickstarter yeah so there's like a, a double trader mechanic in it there's the humans and the machines and the machines are the quote-unquote traders but then there's a guy who's a trader to both sides and neither right exactly and then like if you manage to get further in the game he can actually become more human but he's not entirely human like it, it, it seems really complex but once i played it i really enjoyed it however kind of I actually talked to one of the uh, founders of the company, and I asked, why are they doing this weird thing with the closet? And they said, because it's fun. That's really what they said. This looked like a blast, and we just kind of wanted to show what happened. And they were just laughing the entire time. I can't argue with that. They had guys set up with overalls, talking about how they were mechanics, and they had found this time machine. And pretty much, you could spend $1. And if you gave $1, so it's a gamble, but it's only $1. You gave a dollar to the guy behind the counter, they'd fill out a script saying, you want something from the future? or something from the past. They'd put it into the time machine, close the door, knock on it, and you'd hear a bunch of, you'd see lights kind of going off and spiraling, you would hear whooshing noises like you would expect from any sort of time machine, it would open and you would get some sort of object. I got a respirator mask from the future because apparently, you know, we're all going to be having a lot of hard time breathing because of the rise of machines or some such like that. Um, other people got LED lights, some people got some old 80s comic books or, uh, or or little antique toys. Some people from the future got like signed copies of games that were on the show floor that hadn't been out yet or they were just being released. Other people would get old classics. I think someone won a copy of Dragoon, but don't quote me on that one. So it was like this really weird gambling thing they were just doing on the side, and that's really one reason why you go to conventions is to see all the new stuff that's happening. 
All right, so we're running low on time here. I think we need to move on. So yeah, we could keep going, but we won't. Um, expect a lot of reviews and articles coming out about all the awesome games we played on the show floor, and also things we picked up, like Hero Realms. I picked up the campaign, picked up the Battle for Greyport, a lot of really cool stuff. I know Eric did as well. Mm -hmm. We'll get to that in future episodes. We want to really cover the events and sort of the stuff that really kind of either was unique, special, different. It wasn't just a standard game in a lot of ways. Or just it was something that really stood out to us. I think I'm going to have to open up with one that was phenomenal for me, which was getting to play Catan VR. Oh, nice. Now, you might have actually heard about Catan VR, actually. Catan VR was actually announced a while ago, and it had a trailer where they were kind of talking with the founder of the game, Klaus, and kind of walking around talking about the game. And at the end, he puts on Oculus Rift and says, oh, wow. Kind of got a little bit of jokes and laughs, like, okay, what is this thing? What is it actually about? Can you actually make a VR game about Catan? Well, I actually got a chance to actually go to the company that's the ones behind the VR technology and their mission statement. They're phenomenal people. I really enjoyed what they were trying to do. The company is called Experiment 7, and they said they are. there's a lot of industry veterans that are kind of running that thing. And this is something they want to do because they love going into new technology and kind of reformatting the way things work. And they are going to make a lot of games with Experiment 7 that are VR, but all of them are going to be tabletop and board games. Cool, so it's like the evolution of Tabletop Simulator. Exactly. That's actually something they kind of talked about, but they said that everything that they're going to make is going to be officially licensed. It's going to have complete back-end. In Tabletop Simulator, a lot of it is either scanned on or bootlegged. And you know, it's one reason why I actually don't usually use Tabletop Simulator, because the rules aren't there, so in case someone accidentally moves the wrong piece, nothing tells you you've done something wrong. Which is one reason why I like to play digital versions of board games. This is a game fully funded, fully... You know, this is a game that has been funded and licensed by the company behind it. So this has been given the blessing to make a Catan game. I was thinking, all right, how could this actually be so immersive and how could this actually be, you know, kind of a big thing? It was, and I was not expecting that. The big thing that they kind of really sold it on me is they said, you're never going to get your high school or college friends back together again, where you were all living close, you could get together on Friday night and play whatever you wanted. Most of you guys have moved away from each other and it's harder to get back together. If VR had a catalog of games where you could actually play with each other through the internet, you can get as close as you can back to that. And I actually now believe them. When I actually turned on the Oculus Rift and put it on myself, it was more immersive than I was expecting it to. Yes, I'm sitting down and you've got the Catan game in front of me, but I'm actually sitting, they actually had it set up to look like a small Viking mead hall or a small Viking hall. When I stood up, it actually would register that I had stood up and I could look out the window and see more of the background of mountains and otherwise they had they had a really great orchestral score going on in the background. And I was playing against AI, which were pretty much moving portraits like you would expect from Harry Potter. But when you're playing against a human opponent, it'll be a avatar of like a face. It would be like a fox head or a different animal or something like that, very cartoonish. So it doesn't go into the uncanny valley, right? So you're, Eric, that's not really you. You're not, you're not doing something like that. So they don't look like a, a Fallout character. Right, yeah, they're not freaking out or, you know, when Assassin's Creed kind of gets glitched. But the thing is that because you have your hands in the VR machine is tracking where your hands are and where your head is, you can actually see when you're, you know, you've got that one friend that bobs their head side to side when they're thinking, you'll be able to actually pick that up through there. And you've got a mic automatically in the game. Oh, it's that sensitive. It's that sensitive. So you can actually kind of read your friend. So if you know me, you know, when I start flailing my hands when I'm winning, you'll be able to register that. You'll know that's me sitting across from you. The thing that finally sold me is that they have sort of a small UI or like, you know, the heads up display of all the different cards that you've gotten for your sheep, your wood, your stone, and also where you kind of punch in the dice rolls. 
I can actually grab that, move it to anywhere I want on the screen, and leave it there. That's really cool. And so, like, that felt tactile. I really felt like I was able to actually do that. It didn't feel like, oh, yeah, I'm just kind of waving my hands or things are happening. You could actually then um, point at parts of the board, and it would place the, place the towns, place the roads. They said they're going to even work more to make it some more so you can actually drop them off yourself, place them onto the board, and they're really working for that. Uh, so we're moving toward, like, Tony Stark's computer where he gets to just spin the thing around and blow it up and pull parts out of it, put them in. Maybe not quite to that point, but it definitely it was more impressive than I was expecting. They said they were only going to sell copies of the game for 20 or less because they know everyone has Catan, and they're hoping this kind of revives interest in it, and it's a proof that, hey, you can play tabletop through technology and really enjoy it. So I wasn't expecting that, and I loved it. Excellent. And I know I finally got you to kind of do something a little bit out of the blue. Oh, yeah. I finally fulfilled my promise to Wyatt, and I went to a Pokemon trading card game tournament. Um, <laughs> Wyatt and I both got back into Pokemon, sort of. We got back into it sort of recently. So I told Eric, when we go there, Cascade Games will be there. You have to go try playing Pokemon. Yeah, so I went there. Um, actually, I meant to enter a constructed tournament. I misread the schedule or signed up for the wrong thing. I wound up in a pre-release for the new set, which actually worked out very well for me. And the impression that I'm getting here is that Pokemon, the trading card game, is sort of reviving right now. There were a couple people there who were, you know, hardcore into it and had been all right, along. Right, right. A lot of the people were either new to the game or, like me, had played like a decade ago and were now getting back into it. But anyway, it was a pre-release for their new set. We got, I think it was four packs each and a set of cards in a little plastic sleeve. Mm-hmm. And using those, we built our decks of 40 cards, and we just went at it. And I actually did surprisingly well for myself there. I wound up with a 2-to-1 record, given that I only got back into the game, like, maybe a month ago. What element were your Pokémon? Um, I split the difference between Psychic and Fighting. So, I mean, <laughs> I came here to try to find new review copies and try new things in board games and go through that. I was not expecting to, while I'm going to conventions, I forgot the danger of finding new things and just buying them and going, what have I done? Um, that's how we got back into Pokemon for myself and now Eric as well, poor guy. And then um, I was not expecting this. There was a new CCG there that just came out this year called Lightseekers. Yeah, I actually tried that one too. I tried I tried one game of it and I thought it was okay, although I couldn't really see myself playing that over top of like Magic or Netrunner or even Pokemon. I remember you told me that, but I went over and I got I got kind of brought in to try a demo because I knew some of the guys from Cascade Games, and they sat down with me, and I got to play a round or two, and I loved it. I actually fell in love with the game. It's only a 35-card deck, and instead of operating in other ways, it does feel very, very different. There are six different factions, or I believe they're called orders in this set, and um, they have very, very specific wraparounds. So you've got Storm for water and lightning and all of that, and you have Mountain, and you have Nature. And one thing that's different is that you have cards that are buffs, and when you place down the buff cards, they actually rotate. And in the corner of buffs, it'll actually change based on what corner is currently come up. So you can have something that deals one damage, then two damage, then three damage, and then expire. You might also have something like a cannon, which does nothing, and then does nothing, and then does nothing, and then does eight damage all at once. So you can really build these really different mechanics right onto the board itself, and I really like that. You could also take cards and shuffle them back into your deck to fire off combos with your superpowers. It felt really, really good. 
All right, that's fair. I, I finally put my finger on it. I think I felt stifled by it because you're very strictly limited in what you can do each turn. You only get two actions or even less if you want to draw more cards. And comparing that to, like, Magic, where as long as you've got the mana for it, you can keep going forever. Or even Netrunner, which has limited actions, but I feel like you can do more with those actions. Okay. I actually like the limitation where you had to go back and forth, so you couldn't just kind of have an infinite combo to go off. You actually kind of had to set it up over time. But I guess that's, you know, there's a CCG for everyone. CCGs are expensive, but apparently now I found one that I like and I'm going to have to write about. All right, and I think there's only one way to finish this up. Yes, I'm definitely going to either be writing two or three or four different articles about this, and that is the Mega Game. Mega Games were phenomenal. I finally got the chance to play one. Adam got to play one about two years ago for us. It was Their Eyes Were Watched, and it was XCOM-based. Kind of the aliens versus humans trying to defend themselves. In this one, it was The World Turned Upside Down. It was run by Ironmark Games, which kind of had this entire small conference room off to the side just for running these mega games. Why do you need a small conference room? They probably could have used a slightly bigger one because these can have 60 people or more in them. You actually walked in and kind of saw the chaos at the end. Oh yeah. I wasn't actually playing. I was off doing my own thing, but when I got there, it's like why I said it was this conference room and it was packed with people. Um, there were people, you know, hosting little Senate meetings, having conferences. There were people running around as spies. It, it looked like insanity from the outside. So the way it works is that we start in 1775. And when you sign up for the game, you could try to register as a team. I think that's one way I got in. I registered with my friend Antonella, Joy, uh, Jeff, and Christina. And we went in and we said we want to be the delegation from New York. We didn't get our wish, which worked out better for us. We got the delegation from Virginia. So Antonella, my AP history friend all through high school, got to be George freaking Washington. And they were all historical characters. You actually started to feel really identified to them, and you could choose a role for each one of these characters to fulfill different objectives. I got to be actually, I, I forget her first name, but I was a female character, and I was actually a spy master. That's what they decided to make me. You would. It's just the way it worked out. They were kind of trying to decide. The way the game works is that you have to play a year, and a year is half an hour. Um, you have 15 minutes that are active, and then 15 minutes that are kind of passive or planning. During the active, you break off into your three different groups. You have the three different active areas. The first one is the war room, which has... I mean, what is the size of that map? It was at least like 20 feet long, it felt like. Must have been, at least. It's a, it's a map of the colonies, and each different section was broken down and had dice on it showing off where the British forces were, where the American forces were, and people could, during that active time, deliberate where to move people. They had kind of programmed themselves out and were actively doing that and having to make snap judgments to change things. Wyatt's not crying, he's just losing his voice. Yeah, sorry, it's been a very long, long weekend. I'm, I'm hoping I can make it through and then I'm going to be drinking tea all tomorrow. And then as the years went on, you'd actually see new things on there like Hessians or pirate privateers or mercenaries. And they kind of just would show up over the course of different active scenarios. The reason for that was because you also had the Congress. The Congress was where the lawmakers went. If you had the war room was more like risk, the law room was pretty much LARPing or role-playing where you had to make the best arguments you could to pass laws and cause judgment. Passing laws would change taxes to limit resources or expand them. You could try to either... You have to remember, the colonies didn't all start unified, so you actually had to make a choice to make your area go independent and declare independence and then force allies, make votes of confidence to say, we are now independent as an entire nation, we're going to ally. So throughout the course of the game, you can actually change the revolution. Several different groups, including, I think, New York was a holdout. They try to make an alliance with King George themselves Bastards. rather than come with us. Yeah. Darn New Yorkers. 
So, I mean, it, it actually changed. Because remember, the other players were the British. King George was actually a human player who would come in who wasn't with the company. He had a tricorder hat, and he gave these bombastic, ridiculous speeches telling us we were bad colonists and they should love him and everything like that. Um, so you'd pass the laws, and then you had the spy ring, which was a bluffing game, and based on that, you were trying to actually break into the lockbox by finding out a particular secret code by recovering cards while the British were trying to steal resources off of your deck while you stole them from them. It felt really, really good, and that was frantic as heck. Then you would actually have the 15-minute off period where you had to sit at your table where your delegation was. Now, some people had two delegations, like North Carolina and South Carolina. We were alone as Virginia, and other groups were as well. And you could not talk to other tables. You were not allowed to. You had to pass notes. And this is where things got nuts. By the second round in, everyone figured this out, and you would just see 10, 15 people whip their hand to their ear and say, Control! Note to the spymaster of New Jersey, which is what I was doing a lot to pass notes there. You'd have Georgia screaming for Maryland and be people begging for money, begging for food. We need resources. But you couldn't talk openly. So you had secret alliances happening all the time. Uh, Antonella, as George Washington, actually had this great point where we were trying to get other people to declare independence and they were resisting it. And they finally did it by, he's, she started signing things, heart George Washington, we love you, live free or die. Sent out the note, and they said, we will stand with you, Hart Benjamin Franklin. <laughs> Maybe not historically accurate, but it was really, really funny. I choose to believe. Meanwhile, for me, I was uh, the spy master, and I would write to the other spy masters, trying to tell them, we need food, we're going to try to attack here. North Carolina actually said they were staying with the British, but they were actually secretly giving all of their resources to us under the table. So there was oh, nice. a neutral colony. So you could actually really mess with this. And it felt really, really good. Remember, this was a four-hour event. Did not feel like that. I want to do it again, even though that's how I lost my voice. I'm sorry, listeners. Um, we're definitely going to write more articles about it, more in detail. But if you get a chance to play a mega game, it is one of those things that's very hard to find if you are not at a convention. Definitely give it a shot if you can. So I think that brings us to almost the end here. So I have to ask you one big thing, Eric. Yeah. What did we think of the whole convention? Was it good? Did we like the first PAX Unplugged? Oh, I loved it. I know I said in my recap of days one and two, day one at least, I think is the most fun I've ever had at a, at a convention. Really? Okay. Um, and I think a large part of that is just the different feel to it. There was a very different energy from like PAX East. PAX East is very bright and loud and in your face, and PAX mm -hmm. Unplugged is not that at all. Uh, it's a lot more chill. The energy, not low key, but the energy is a lot more relaxed. Well, you don't have all the blaring screens and technology and the music fighting each other. Yeah, so it's very much you can just walk in, you can find the thing you want to play, people are happy to walk up and talk to you, and in PAX East it feels like people are trying to hawk their wares, and in PAX Unplugged it was more like, hey, come play with us. Yeah, because there was less time on lines and there was more time actually sitting and playing demos. Yeah. So, um, I had a great time. I would love to go back next year. I definitely do. <laughs> I definitely want to go back uh, once I have caught up on sleep. I'd love to go for the one next year. And I think um, Eric is right. It definitely had a different feel. And I'm so glad I finally got to go to a, a dedicated board game convention. Were there a few rough edges? Um, absolutely. It was their first time in that convention center. So that's going to happen on that account. It was the first board game convention Penny Arcade was hosting. So that's another set of sort of, not even issues, just kind of figuring out the rough edges of things. I'd love to see more RPG space given to those areas downstairs. I think people would be really happy about that. A lot of people actually in the expo hall talked about how they weren't sure how to calibrate for this one because they were used to Gen Con, which is very much a business 
people are going to rush. This is where you announce all your big games, like what Renegade did. And then you have ones that are very laid back, and they're just very much just open play. This is kind of in the middle. Yeah, and I know I had at least... I had more than one vendor there saying that they wish they'd gotten a bigger booth. Like, because it was the first year, they weren't... They were hesitating to go all in, and they wish they had. Like, they they might have had a small booth showing off one game, and they wish they had brought all their stuff. I, I wish they did, too, sometimes, because some of the stuff that was there was fantastic, and I can't wait to see more... I can't wait to see what happens in the next year. I know, at least for us, we have a very large table filled with stuff right outside of where we're recording our podcast right now. So me and Eric are going to be busy for a few months. It was phenomenal going as press. I know for me, it's going as press and doing this as press. Nice is a great mixture of feeling like awe and feeling getting these very large natural highs on the energy and feeling, hey, look, we're doing it. And then also feeling a little bit intimidated when you walk by people like the Dice Tower. I got to talk to Eric Summer. And he talked about all of his like his setup for his podcast and work crowd around one mic here with tapestries everywhere. <laughs> eh, we'll get there. So it's it's one it's one of those things where it's it's sort of great to kind of see your heroes and see the people that have done what you're doing before that in terms of whether you're doing press or you're doing game development or otherwise. And then it's also great to see so many gamers in one place enjoying themselves. And with that reason, I can't wait to go back. Absolutely. That brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you for listening in. Did you like what you heard today and want more of our content? Check us out at www.spritesanddice.com for all of our articles updated every week. You can follow us on Twitter at Sprites and Dice or join our Facebook group to be notified about all of our posts and events. These episodes are possible thanks to the support of our listeners and readers and everyone out there that loves picking up a controller or a pair of dice. If you want to support the Sprites and Dice project, please take a moment to leave us a review on iTunes or stop by our Patreon. Every dollar helps. Thank you for being a gamer. Remember everyone, life is short, so have fun gaming.